welcome. This is episode 98 of UConn 360, which of course is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen, and normally I'm in the beautiful Lakeside building in Storrs, Connecticut, but today I'm in Manchester. And joining me, as always, is my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you? I'm doing all right, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. Doing fine. It's a beautiful spring day. Well, it's a Nice it's a little there. gray. We have a uh, we have a very interesting guest. We're excited to talk to. But before we do that, we have a couple of headlines we want to go through. There's some plaudits and some honors. Uh, oh yeah, that, uh, as always, um, Board of Trustees distinguished professor Kathy Seegerson, an environmental economist, was recently elected to the prestigious National Academy of Sciences, which was established by Abraham Lincoln and is charged with providing independent advice to the nation on science and technology issues. And members are elected by their peers for their outstanding research contributions. And Seegerson joins three other UConn faculty members who have received this honor. So very rare to be part of that group. Congratulations Congratulations. to her. And then the other piece I wanted to mention was that Samantha Gove, who is a rising junior uh, sociology and human rights major and psychological sciences minor, has been selected as a 2022 Udall Scholar. This honor is awarded on the basis of commitment to careers in the environment, tribal public policy or native health care, leadership potential, record of public service, and academic achievement. A native of Granby, Gove is the ninth Udall Scholar in Yukon history and the third in the past four years. We've got a pretty good record going there as well. She's a member of the Mashantucket Pequot tribe and an activist, as well as the incoming president of the Native American and Indigenous Student Association and student coordinator for the Native American cultural programs at Yukon. Congratulations to Samantha. Yeah, congratulations. Absolutely. That's fantastic. You know, at at the risk of of being somewhat grim, obviously there's been a lot of of concern and even despair, I think, about the the wave of mass shootings in the United States. There's on UConn Today, I think, a really valuable article that's showcasing some of the research that's being done here on aspects related to gun violence, everything from uh, mental health to uh, community activism, to data gathering, to the way that physicians talk about this with their patients. It, it's it's nice to know that there are people who are really working to find uh, research-based uh, solutions for, for policymakers and for citizens. So if you're feeling sort of despairing that, that no one's doing anything, um, just read the article and, and see what some of the, the best minds in the country are doing on it. And, and one thing I, I love about a, a large public research university is that we have faculty members who are experts in everything you can imagine, anything and everything. And uh, today's guest is somebody who is a specialist and an expert in a really fascinating area of life that I think a lot of people experience, but maybe don't know much about. Julie, tell us who we're going to meet today. Yes. Soyeon Park is an assistant professor in the Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture, which, as we know, is in the College of Agriculture, Health and Natural Resources. And she's an affiliate of the Sustainable Global Cities Initiative at UConn Hartford. Welcome, Soyeon. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's great. So the reason that we were hooked up, Jesse McBride, who's the communications person over in the College of Ag, told us that you recently co-hosted a symposium on Frederick Law Olmsted, who's known as the father of American landscape architecture. He's actually a Hartford native, was long dead, but was a Hartford native. And he's a landscape architect who designed city parks all over the world, including Central Park, obviously one that we all know. So tell us a little bit about what Olmsted was kind of all about and why we're still talking about him in 2022. Frederick Olmsted Sr. was born in Hartford in 1822, 200 years and one month ago. As you said, Frederick Olmsted is an American landscape architect, but he was also a journalist. 
uh, social critic and also public administrator. Like you say, he is considered to be the father of landscape architecture. So I'm in the landscape architecture program, and he is a Harvard native landscape architecture student. Don't know if he was born and buried in here, but he's really fascinating guy. He's really genius in his time and still is in the current time as well. He is America's preeminent park maker. You know, as most of us know, he's famous for co-designing Central Park with his partner Carbox Fox. And he and his design firm have designed a lot of well-known urban parks for more than you know 100 years. His legacy is pretty important, I guess, in the origin of the public parks. So that he actually made a visit to Birkenhead Park in 18. 50 in Liverpool, England, which was、uh, world's first publicly funded open space park, and he was really fascinated by the style, the nature style, and also passive recreation, and try to create a park in the United States so that. Central Park was created in 1857, which is the nation's first public urban park in the United States. I think the most important thing that we need to remember is not only the parks and great, you know, urban spaces that he wanted to envision in his time, but at the same time, we just wanted to connect his、uh, legacy into building sustainable cities, and we have a lot of. Challenges that we face in this century and also future of the twenty、uh, first century, in terms of human health and environmental issues, and also economic、uh, issues, and you know all different kinds of、uh, challenges that we have. So we wanted to highlight the contemporary park benefit that could be understood by. The general public, what the Olmsted legacy means in the contemporary society, particularly in Hartford and Connecticut. So, what does it mean? What are some of those principles and ideas that he had, or things that he put into place in his parks that we can take to tackle some of our modern challenges? You know, climate change, sustainability, even equity is related to this. Yeah, that's a really good question. So, in his time, there was a lot of. You know, environmental pollution issues and also some social justice issues because the parks were not really considered as a space that everybody can go. He wanted to make that really available to anybody, everybody, so that whether they are in the working class or in any part of the social status, he wanted to provide open areas for them to be. Taking rest from the hustle and bustle of the city life at the time, and that was really important to provide the recreation. Notion of recreation was not really evident in his time, but he wanted to tackle not only the environmental issues but also social issues that we are really tackling with in the current time as well. You mentioned the park in Liverpool is the first public open space park, and I don't think a lot of people realize that. Public parks are relatively new. We may take them for granted, but、um, this idea of having an open space for everybody, rich and poor, everyone in the city, is, is kind of new. What did it look like in the United States before Olmsted? Was there much of a green space? Was there much public park system? Is it something people cared about before the middle of the nineteenth century? Well, th- there are some documents about early public parks, but. There's not really park systems in a way in his time, so that was actually him that promoted the public park systems, and so that all those little 
parks at different spatial scales, whether that's a national or regional or community or neighborhood level, all those large and small parks and green spaces can be interconnected to create a system for the citizens. Uh, I think that's uh, one of the big achievements that he made, just to interconnect the system so that people can have better access to those areas. The people were really tired uh, of the work and then they were suffering from the urban congestion and pollution. So the parks really serve as a means, like therapeutic and accessible areas to enjoy the nature and passive recreation uh, activities. What has the research shown about the impact of having these spaces on our well-being? So there are a lot of research that is coming out. You know, there there was some research already, but these days having COVID, you know, that was really big stuff. And then we just re-envision and re-realize the importance of public parks. And there are a lot of research that presents the benefit of public parks and green spaces. So one of them is public health, which can include the physical health and also mental health. Just providing the spaces for people to rest, it will actually relieve their stress level. There's a lot of research about the potential benefit of having parks nearby their residences for their mental health, depression, suicide impact, and all that. And also, there are some kind of spiritual benefits as well, so that they feel relieved, and then they just try to look into their own self. I'm actually involved with the book project, and I'm a co-editor of the new book that includes more than 50 chapters. The book is tentatively titled as Transformative Power of Parks. We have four different sections in that book project. One is the impact of the urban parks on physical health and well-being, you know, equity and inclusion. And so we just try to hit very different aspects of of urban parks, particularly focused on the impact on one is about environmental literacy and stewardship. Third one is about community resilience and vitality. And the last one is about equity and inclusion. We just try to hit very different aspects on those issues. The list of projects that Olmsted worked on is really impressive. I mean, it's Central Park, but also Prospect Park in Brooklyn, the Niagara Falls State Park, Smith College, Wellesley College, the landscape of the U.S. Capitol building. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, with, with something like that, when when landscape architects today, when they work in those spaces, what's their relationship to his work? I mean, do they feel like they have to continue what he did? Can they feel free to alter or change things as needs change? You know, when you're working with Central Park, for example, do people think they have to keep the design exactly as it was? Or do landscape architects feel free to experiment and alter the designs? Well, if you see the original plans of those famous parks, you will notice that there are some kind of changes over time. Some parks try to maintain the physical features and design concept that Olmsted had envisioned. But as we go, there might be some maintenance issues, and then they wanted to translate some of those ideas to 
cater more for the contemporary issues. One of the issues that we have is about a lot of turf because he really advocated for the nature in the park so that you can see the terrain and the wooded areas uh, in the middle of really heavily built areas like New York City. All those natural features that you can see is actually artificial. He brought a lot of planting materials and rocks and boulders and everything to make a really naturalistic uh, landscapes and terrain. But then the, the other pieces that he really utilized a lot in his own design spaces was the meadows and then big lawns. So those kind of things are really kind of iconic for his design style. You know, some landscape architects now think about there might be better ways that we can have maybe biodiversity and have more fauna and then, you know, birds, animals, uh, mammals, you know, you can just increase the heterogeneity of those natural landscapes there, not just putting the big lawn areas. So I would say that we still respect and try to maintain the core ideas and principles that he envisioned, but then we might modify some of those design principles in a way that we can tackle better for the current problem that we have, like climate change or social justice issues. So you can have a more access point to those public areas. So it's not just, you know, one community's asset that could be really shared in common with very different types of people. Going beyond Olmsted and parks, you, so you, you just started talking about it a little bit. I was curious, you know, we don't really think about like that our cities and towns were planned in a lot of cases, sometimes not as well as others. And you kind of take it for granted and until you really see like what a walkable community can really be like, or, you know, when you compare Hartford where they cut off access to the river and, you know, intruded on the neighborhoods with the highways and things like that. So as we evolve and as we go forward with the knowledge we have, what do you think are some of the things that city planners need to keep kind of at the top of their mind. What are some of the most important things, in your opinion, that they should think about? Planners and also designers, including landscape architects, I think they need to think a little more holistically, not really looking at the each individual park spaces. While each individual park spaces are important as well, and then there is a lot of ways that we can do better to mitigate the climate change and also tackling social justice issues so they can have a more accessible and safer public parks and green spaces. But I think the holistic thinking to see your areas, whether that's single towns or cities or regional areas, and you can think about how those parks and green spaces are laid out throughout the city fabric, right? So that there might be some big parks, but there might be some small pocket parks that can do their job in the continuum of the overall network of parks and green spaces. So I think uh, having more comprehensive and holistic thinking in terms of planning interventions would be really important. And I know that Harvard has really exciting initiatives these days. And I know they are, well, SGCI, for example, is currently finalizing a partnership with Riverfront Recapture, which is the nonprofit that manages riverfront parks in Hartford and East Hartford. They just try to create outdoor signage along a new linear park that is slated to build along the Connecticut River from Hartford to Windsor. That is a great example that we want to have a more connected linear landscapes that can have better access to the riverfront areas that has historically been not 
the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will actually eventually connect the Harvard Crown Riverside Park to uh, Winter Meadow State Park. So that's not, you know, completely, yeah, it's, it's still in the planning phase, but there will be really great reflections of how we can connect all those different piecemeal park areas into collective whole. Do you have a favorite Olmstead project? Is there something he worked on that you like more than others? Well, there are some parks in, in Connecticut. We have Beardsley Park and Seaside Park in Bridgeport. And we have a Walnut Hill Park in New Britain. And in Hartford, there is a grounds for the Institute of Living, which is medical facilities there in the Hartford area. And so I'm relatively new. This is my fourth year living in Connecticut. So I'm still learning uh, a lot of spaces. And it's really fascinating to just go and see the beautiful landscapes uh, in here. But yeah, I really like the the seaside park in the context of Connecticut because that's Oceanside Park, which was really rare in his time to have a public park near the ocean areas. And so it just connects the local communities, which was historically disadvantaged. And then there are some kind of emerging conservation effort actually to provide more tree canopies and native species over there. And, and also very recently, my community planning student had Bridgeport as a design site so that we were given an opportunity to design the areas along the Juana River, which is really not very accessed by the community for now, but we are envisioning to have more park spaces to those waterfront areas. That area is not designed by Olmsted, but I think that is something that we can carry on his legacy into the contemporary areas. I did not know Walnut Hill Park. I'm very familiar with Walnut Hill Park. That's great. Yeah, Yeah. my family, a a bunch of my family is from New Britain. So spend some time there. That's cool. What are you working on? I know your lab. I love your lab. Sustainable Urban Planning and Ecology Research or SUPER, the SUPER Lab. What's, uh, What's the research happening right now? Yeah, so there are several projects right now in our research lab, and one is about the Hatch project, which is supported by the USDA NIFA. And we actually get our survey out in the last week to ask the citizen in Connecticut to just examine how much they are in the open space and how often they are in those areas, who they are visiting those parks and green spaces with. So a bunch of questions about park use and their level of exposure to those park areas and public open space areas. And I just wanted to connect their level of experience and exposure to green spaces with their level of engagement in the community. So try to couple green spaces and community resilience together. We have hundreds of postcards that were printed last week, and then it's being distributed to the sample populations throughout the state now. And then the other project, the book project that I mentioned already, I'm working with six different co-editors throughout the state. And we have really nice chapters that we try to have a thought pieces 
and and always the collective voice to promote park spaces and their outcomes and benefits for human health and well-being. We just wanted to inform public policy and planning initiatives so that we can have a more and better accessible public spaces. And I've just finished a journal article that was actually based upon the research that I did with several colleagues of mine, which was basically collecting the social media data so that we collected Twitter data in the tri-state that include Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey over early period of a COVID uh, pandemic. And so that we wanted to know what their perceptions were on their use of public parks and green spaces and what they really appreciated in terms of the features and programs that they were able to see. And what was striking for me was that there is a really new keyword that were appear on the social media post which was about spiritual dimensions, like, you know, connecting to God and connecting to nature, just to look into their own self and a lot of kind of spiritual reflections, which was not quite common in pre-COVID social media data. So I thought it was pretty interesting because pre-COVID, most of those posts that they were noted in their social media platform, like Twitter, was all about like ball playing, you know, baseball and tracking and bicycle and walking, which is still remain in post-COVID social media data. But there's a new stuff that you can see in the post-COVID uh, social media that's more about nature, it's more about spiritual dimensions, more about emotional and mental related keywords that you were able to find. I thought that's very interesting. That is really interesting. It makes sense, but very interesting. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for telling us about all this. This is so fascinating. I mean, I, I, I love to go to parks and I spend a lot of time in them. So knowing more about how they come to be and what decisions go into them is it's really fascinating. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to talking with you. That was fun. She was that cool. was fun. What are we going to talk about? Well, you know, as we're we're going to journey to Tom's history ice cream cart, whatever. I don't Ooh. know. Bonus history fact, not necessarily Yukon related, but you can visit Frederick Law Olmsted's grave at Old North Cemetery in Hartford. And also buried there is William Lucius Stores, oh. as in the Stores family, who was a U.S. congressman from Connecticut and was a member of the Whig Party. Oh. So. Is he... <clears throat> a brother of Charles and Augustus or a descendant? I think he also, by the way, his brother, Henry Stores, was also a U.S. congressman. I mm-hmm. think they were like cousins of the cousins. Stores from okay. Eastern Connecticut. Yeah. But uh, and his brother was a, a Federalist congressman who was one of the main opponents of Andrew Jackson's relocation of the Cherokee people. Wow. Yeah. So good um, for Henry Stores. Yes. Uh, have you been there? I assume you've been to these graves. Yeah, well, I've, I've been that's to... that's the type of thing that you do. <laughs> I do like cemeteries. I've been to Old North Cemetery. <laughs> like maybe 20 years ago, I guess it had really fallen in disrepair and they did a great job getting some like grant money and fixing it up. So it's it's very nice to, to check it out. It's, Is that it's the one where they world. have like people do tours and stuff there, right? Like they have docents and things or... N- no. There is one in Hartford. It's, that it's might... like Cedar Hill or something. Yes, like, yeah. yes, yes. I've been on tours at Cedar Hill. They do like a ghost tour. Yeah. October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Um, and there's some really Catherine Hepburn's buried there. Yeah. Anyway, we digress into cemetery talk. Um, Always talking cemeteries. Well, um, history ice cream cart. For history, for Yukon history. Always talking cemeteries. <laughs> everybody, 
everybody knows that WHUS uh, UConn Sound Alternative is on your radio dial 91.7 FM. Mm-hmm. What I assume most people don't know is that once upon a time, it was not FM at all. It was an AM station. Wow. And the transition from AM to FM was so fraught on campus that it involved complaints filed with the federal government. Why? You know, I'm not sure. This is one of those things where I was reading the the coverage and like they just assume so much existing knowledge about why people are fighting over the transition from AM to FM. Because back then it was a thing that you would fight about. And I guess so. I mean, if you're if you're not familiar, if you're not familiar and I grew up in a radio household. So the difference between AM and FM is how the sound wave is, Mm is is modulated or altered. So with AM radio, the amplitude of the signal is varied to incorporate the sound, the information. With FM, the frequency rather than the amplitude is what's varied. And uh, AM is much older. AM is the first radio signal. 1870 or so is when the first AM uh, broadcasts were made. FM is much more recent. FM has much better sound quality. Well, to me, yeah, when you listen to AM radio, it sounds like it's 1870 when <laughs> they're talking, yes. like you're, you're hearing yes. a blast from the past. Yes, they can, there can be more signals within the AM band, but you, okay. you lose the quality. When FM radio was developed in the 20th century, the sound quality was, was much, much better. And so that became the dominant music broadcasting right. uh, method. Although, you know, I live in a house full of old, old radios, and most of them just are AM radios. Huh. Like FM didn't really start becoming a common feature of radios until the 60s. And I'm wondering if that was part of the reason why the change was fought, because this was 1956, mm-hmm. which is pretty early to, to switch over to FM. So they, they literally didn't have the technology to listen to it probably in a lot of cases like it's like when you know you have to get your phone with the new headphones and that's infuriating because you can't just plug in headphones to your phone i know or you have to buy a dongle a dongle that is the dumbest word who came up with that word gotta buy a dongle but this is a story from september uh, 1956 by nancy k mason apparently the student senate divided along party lines but again doesn't actually say which party was parties Um, and that they that they narrowly voted in favor to switch to FM, and then the who was leading the charge against it, Senator uh, Stephen Pivnik, announced that he was filing a complaint with the Federal Communications Commission, which apparently he did. But they note that other colleges had been switching over to FM, including MIT, after a- MIT was apparently fined for some well, reason. Well, if MIT is doing it, are yeah. are we still? Do we still care what student senators' uh, political parties are? So back then, and I don't know what it was in the 50s, but until pretty recently, UConn student government, they had like UConn specific parties. So so it wasn't like Republicans wow. and Democrats. Right, right. Yeah. So I guess. I didn't know that. I guess maybe the party line thing meant more than. I like right. to think that they were, they were just based on radios. Like that was it. There was the AM party and the FM party. <laughs> the FM party had a narrow majority. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Wow. But, the stuff that people fought over. But the story notes that WTIC, the venerable WTIC, mm-hmm. had tried to switch over to FM in the 40s and had been blocked by the federal government in doing so. Now I listen to WHUS on the internet. So I don't. Right. Use- so it doesn't matter what the radio frequency is. Wow. Technology just has. It is. It is. Leaps I mean, and bounds. Leaps and bounds. But it's fine to think back. And I mean, I guess it's a fair debate. Like if you're saying. If we switch over to this, the sound quality would be better. Other universities are switching over, but our students won't actually be able to listen to this. I, mean, that's, I guess that's a fair point. Yeah, I wonder if that's the like the crux of the issue. I don't know. I wish, I wish Senator Pivnik was a little more clear in his objection. <laughs> He's just threatening to go to the FCC. 
I think I might. Well, maybe I won't, but I, I'll talk about filing a FOIA request at the FCC to see if anyone ever filed a complaint over WHUS. I'll talk about it. <laughs> I won't actually follow through with this, but I'll I'll bring up the idea now. That maybe maybe like, it'll be a summer project. Maybe it uh, sounds like limit. a waste of everyone's time. I, I, won't, <laughs> <laughs> I won't limit it to this. I will I will just say any complaints filed regarding WH because I bet like people file complaints over like bad language or something. Yeah, people swear and stuff. Do they have any rules about that? Like there obviously must be, right? Between certain hours, you can't. Yes, I remember Ken telling me about this. Wait, didn't Uncle Barry tell us a story about that? Yes, there was something about like the safe harbor and like a certain time where you could, I don't remember exactly what the rules were. Ken, I know you're listening. Tell us what the rules are for swearing on the radio. He's not listening. He is absolutely listening. He's not listening. If we were still on WHS, he would listen, but he's not That's listening true. on the. Speaking on the of WHS, Ken internet. is still on WHS. So if he you, is. If you have the internet, or if you're within range of an FM transmitter broadcasting 91.7 FM, you can listen to Ken. This was an action packed episode, and I'm action glad you packed. Folks tuned in. If you want to follow us on the internet, the internet where you can also listen to WHS, you can go to Twitter and you can follow us at UConn Podcast. You can follow me at TJ Breen. You can follow Julie also on Twitter. At Julie Bartuka. You're still disappointing me, Tom. You have not oh, God, I know. put up the pictures. I know, I know what you're going to bring up. Yeah. Those students. And I, and I was just looking at old pictures of like the community chest carnival from the 50s that are hilarious. They'll put them on the internet. That, I will. That Twitter account, main underscore old, has not had much action lately. And I think I the people want it. I know. I gotta. I gotta. I gotta get my act together. I know you're a busy guy. It's okay. All right. So we'll be back in in two weeks uh, for episode ninety nine, and then not going to give anything away. But extravaganza. We've got some special plans for episode one hundred. So, I mean, get excited. Make make plans now. Take the day <laughs> off from work. There will be cake. There will be yeah yeah. There might be cake. Virtual yeah. cake. All right, everybody. Thanks.